There's an unforgettable scene in the stage production of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables in which a ragtag band of aspiring revolutionaries is preparing to do battle for justice and liberty against a vastly superior and expert army. And as the moment of confrontation rushes toward them, a wave of doubt sweeps over this tattered crew, threatening to turn them back from their noble cause. And in this moment of anxiety, suddenly a a voice cries out. It's the voice of one of the rebels crying out a challenge that galvanizes the freedom fighters and spurs them on with fresh courage. And the voice cries out this, this challenge. My friends, he says, the time has come for us to find out who we really are. My question to you this morning, the question I pose even to myself today, is do we know who we really are? Do we have such a clear sense of our own identity that it becomes the central energizing truth of our life? The place, the strong place from which we go forth to live. If the government rescinded your citizenship, for example, if a disaster came and wiped out your family, if a wildfire consumed your home, who would you still be? If your job was taken away from you or your bank account was liquidated, if your face was suddenly disfigured, who would you be? When all of the positions and the possessions and the physical Qualities that society uses to define who we really are are finally taken away as they are eventually stripped away from us all. Who are we then? Do you and I have an identity that is unimpeachable? An identity that is unchangeable? Have we, in short, found out who we really are? In one of our scripture lessons for today, the Apostle Peter strives to help us remember our identity. The Apostle Peter is aware that the people to whom he is writing are being assailed on all sides, pulled and pushed by many forces in that society, persecution, the the power of a very strong secular world. And it is almost like he could foresee the excessively individualistic, consumer-driven, superficial world of the 21st century and the pressures that it would put on us as Christians and how easy it would be for us to lose sight of our true selves as well. And so Peter takes these pains to supply us with three very vivid descriptions of our identity that I want to invite you to think about with me today. And I want you to ponder these things and let them settle, if you can, deeply into yourself so that when you walk out of this place this morning, you are just that much more able to live into and out of this source 
of strength and clarity. I pray that come what may, you will always remember that you are first and foremost a chosen people, says Peter. You are God's special possession. You are a people belonging to God, the apostle reminds us. It is quite something to be chosen, if you really think about that. It is a utterly redefining experience, in a way, to be chosen. I, I remember when I was a child that I knew I was not chosen. I, I had many experiences as a, as a little boy of not being chosen, at least not out on the elementary school playground where the battle for self-esteem often hangs in the balance of whether one is selected for a kickball team or not. I was not. More often than not, it did not help that I wore my hair in a Three Stooges bowl cut in those days, or that I had buck teeth like a woodchuck, or that I wore these large tortoise shell glasses. I looked like Ernie, if you remember the old program, My Three Sons. And so more often than not, I, I sat out the kickball games. Or if I was reluctantly brought into the game, I was exiled to the far outfield with the other awkward boys, never really part of the action, never really part of the team. And then one day, Dave Joquim moved into town. Dave was an unusually big, dark-eyed, tough-looking kid who lived in, the, in an apartment above the mobile station in our town. He was from a poor family by our town standards. But, but in the ranks of grade school boys, Dave was a being of the highest order in spite of his lack of income. Dave was a God on the kickball field. Dave Joquim could throw harder and run faster than anybody else in the school. He could kick the ball over the fence at will. And for some reason, I will never understand, call it an example of grace in blue jeans, Dave Joquim always picked me first to be on his team. Every time, I'd be sort of skulking in the back. Dave would say, Meyer, you're on my team. That guy changed my life. I'm in the list of great influencers in my life. Dave Joachim's right up there towards the top. I mean... That simple, irrational act of choosing unworthy me would start a slow, long process of gradually growing confidence and willingness to strive and a desire to give other people a break in life that was life-altering for me. I know it sounds silly, but that is what Dave's grace did in me. Now, on an infinitely greater field, it, it was this sort of influence that Peter was pointing to 
when he said, once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God, once you had not received mercy. (laughs) But now you have. Now you have. And Peter says this as if this is the most identity-securing, life-changing fact about us. Like this statement he's making ought to make us really surge to our feet with a cry of joy. And it should. Because what Peter is reminding us of is that the most staggering authority in the universe has looked across the field of possible candidates and for equally mysterious reasons has chosen you and me to bring into existence. He has chosen you to endow with resources unparalleled in human history. He has chosen you to come and to die for. He has chosen you into the membership of the longest existing, longest winning team in the history of the world, the Church of Jesus Christ. And what this means is that life can no longer impeach you again. Okay? Life may take away your looks. It may remove your lovely home. It may steal your fancy car. Life may fire you from your job. You may go through a divorce. You may be rejected by people. They may laugh at you if they will, but in the end, it can never cancel the ultimate truth about you. You have been chosen. By the ultimate God of this kickball field. Do you know that? Do you live from that sense of security? That sense of privileged joy? It is equally important to remember that you have been chosen for a purpose and to know what that purpose is. It was to send you out on the field to play a very particular role in this world. You have been chosen, as Peter reminds us secondly, to be part of a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. In his book, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, Leo Tolstoy tells a story that helps us to remember just how important that role as priests is. In this story, faced by his own imminent death from cancer, a formerly pompous public figure by the name of Ivan Ilyich is forced to finally re-examine his life. In the past... His identity has been so much tied to all of these external things. His, his position on the job, his, his looks, his influence, the people he knew, all of those kinds of things. But now he's really re-examining his life and asking himself if he really has been about the most important things. If he's really had an identity that is able to withstand this journey he's going on now. What if my entire life, he writes, my entire conscious life simply was not the real thing? 
Suddenly it occurred to Ivan that what had seemed utterly inconceivable before, that he had not lived the kind of life he should have, might in fact be true. It occurred to Ivan that those scarcely perceptible impulses to to protest what people of high rank considered good, those vague impulses which he had always suppressed, might have been precisely what mattered all along. And all the rest had not been the real thing at all. Who guards the real things? Who speaks up for the real things? Who stands in this world for the real things? Well, all of the falsity and the distractions and the confusion is swirling about. Who points others to the values that matter most? Who tells the stories that preserve those truths? Who helps people discern a wiser way, make good choices before it is too late for us all? Popular culture will not serve that function for us. It just won't. The evening news is going to display for us the latest dismal turn of events, the current antics of some celebrity, some entertaining reel of videotape, and the inevitable and now this from some sponsor who's going to confuse people further by telling us that what's missing really in our life is a better form of breakfast cereal. But popular culture will never tell us where history began, and what's going wrong, and how we fix it. The schools will teach us, I'm sure, how to keep our cubbies clean, and that it's not good to cheat on tests, but most of the time they will not teach the world about that deep repentance that is needed for life to really change on a macro level. They will never be able to tell us about the the story of grace the defining reality of life in this universe. It will never describe for us what a truly abundant life looks like. Our professors will not describe that. The government can't do it. The government will establish laws. It will do its best to cope with dilemmas over the allocation of resources. And it will not, however, be able to tell the world what justice really looks like nor provide any really compelling reason why the well-to-do and the powerful might actually choose to sacrifice in order to meet the needs and lift up the poor. But it is not the job of the media or the schools or the government to tell the story that makes sense of life. It is not the job of those institutions to point to the things of ultimate value, that is the job of the priests, of those chosen to be the royal priests. Now that priestly role is not confined to the guys and the gals who wear the robes on the weekends. It is the job of anyone who, as Peter reminds us here, has been called out of the darkness and into God's wonderful light. 
in Reformed theology, we have this notion we call the priesthood of all believers. We believe that God has called every one of us. He's robed every one of us in a vocation to play in this world, in all the spheres that we enter. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, then your job is to help the people around you see and live by that wonderful light. Are you taking that part of your job, of your identity, as seriously as you can? James Ayers suggests that most people we come into contact with have heard the words of the gospel before. They have heard it many, many times, he says. The words by themselves are not convincing. People must see and hear how the gospel works in our lives. How does our faith help us when we feel successful and proud and ready to gloat? How do we act when our good intentions haven't kept us from getting angry and saying words that we immediately regret? How does knowing Jesus help us when we're tempted to tell a little lie that we hope nobody would ever find out about. In other words, you may not wear a visible crown or a collar, but you are a royal priesthood. God chose you to reveal in the flesh to other people what the real values are and how beautiful they are. What a difference they make when someone is living by them. Let me summarize what I've been trying to say to you and then move us toward a close this morning. Christians have an identity that is the central energizing reality of their lives because they know first and foremost that they have been chosen by God and that gives them a whole different kind of confidence for living. An unimpeachable confidence for living. They know, secondly, they've been chosen to be God's royal priests in the world. And that gives them a new content or purpose for living. And finally, Christians know they have been chosen by God as royal priests of a holy nation, says Peter. And that gives them a new context for living. Duke University scholars Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon put it this way. The greatest challenge facing the church in any age is the creation of a living, breathing, witnessing colony of truth. The greatest challenge in any age is actually creating an outpost of the kingdom of God on earth. That's what a colony is, an outpost of a kingdom. The challenge is to form a community, a real, interactive, people-populated community that is so shaped by our convictions, by what we believe about God and about ourselves and about other people and about life, that's so shaped by our convictions that no one even has to ask what we mean by confessing Belief in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, 
what the writers are confessing here is that it is challenging to be church in the way that Jesus imagined it to be. The temptation is always there for me to start thinking that Christian faith is primarily about me having been chosen by God and about me having been commissioned as a priest to represent the values of God. And from there, it is a really short hop to slip into the way the world thinks about life so often, and that is that church is really about me. How I'm feeling, how I'm doing, what my tastes are. But if we've woken up to who we really are, then we no longer think in such individualistic terms at all. Our whole way of looking at life is now shaped by a God who is in community in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We stop viewing the crowd that is amassed in this building, for example, as just another gathering of individuals, each working out their sort of own individual thing. We don't look at life that way any longer. Now we see one another for who we really are. We, together, are a holy nation. Which in in, in more common vernacular simply means we are literally a community belonging to God, dedicated together to the things of God. We start realizing that if we all made a commitment to get to know and to encourage and to support and to pull for and to pray for one another, an amazing power for life change would fill this place. It would make it like no other place on earth. And we aspire toward that together, to be that kind of holy nation. We start realizing that if if we could all simultaneously be living for the kingdom out in our homes and neighborhoods, in our workplaces and our schools, if we could all be doing this at the same time, living for the values of his kingdom, we would exert a culture-transforming kind of influence by the power of God at work in and through us. And we begin pondering the stunning impact that we could have if we were more united in the use of our resources together. We become awestruck by the thought of God at work in and through one another. In other words, we become fascinated by the power of us, of God in us, of God working through us. It was like that once. There once lived a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. People who saw themselves, thought of themselves, lived out their lives from that identity. And and in the year 129 A.D., 
A man named Quadratus wrote a letter to a religious skeptic friend of his named Diocletus, and in this letter he described a remarkable people with whom he was, as an observer, becoming increasingly fascinated and enraptured, and in fact, one day, he himself would become one of them. He hadn't become one yet. But this is what he wrote. As he observed... This community. They cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language, Diocletus. Yet although they follow the customs of the country they live in, in clothing, food, and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their lives, their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. When they are affronted, They still pay due respect. To put it simply, Diocletus, what the soul is in the body, that Christians are in the world. It is to no less a post than this that God has ordained them. And they dare not try to evade it. Friends, I submit to you, it is time for us to remember who we really are. You have been chosen to be a royal priest of a holy nation. Nothing less than the kingdom of God itself. It is to no less a post than this that God has ordained you and me and every other follower of Jesus here. So let us not try to evade it. Please pray with me. God, there are so many voices out there. There are so many people telling us who we are. You know, we're a graduate of that school. We're an inhabitant of that town. We're a Republican. We're a Democrat. We're black. We're white. We're an accountant, we're a teacher, homemaker. We're a consumer. We're a Lexus owner. Oh God, please help us remember who we really are. 
so that we can use all of these other roles for that central purpose for which you've put us on this earth. Confirm in our hearts our true identity, O God, our King. Give us a new knowledge of who and whose we really are. Remind us that those you call into ministry, you bless with uncommon power to fulfill your mission. And touched by the reality of your kingdom, send us out into the world today to plant new colonies of that kingdom's character in every place and relationship to which we go. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,